This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Hello. I just had a very long conversation with Rev. Mayor Schiller. Now, as you know, we call it Shmuzi Mayor Schiller, but this one really <laughs> went on perhaps a little bit too long for one sitting. So, um, we've decided to basically give it to you in two parts. The first part deals with the off the derech phenomena and trying to analyze it from perspectives from inside and outside. And the second part we actually talk about, mostly really it's about, as you're going to hear, the cell phone and how that has changed things and how perhaps there maybe needs to be a reconsideration of the phone in terms of how it's accepted and understood and demonized in those worlds. So we have part one followed by part two. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is Shposing with Rav Meir Schiller, Meir Enei Chachomim. Uh, we're recording here on the, uh, on the seventh day of Hanukkah. I don't know if we call it, uh, Erev Zeis Hanukkah, but as Hanukkah is approaching its apex, especially in Chesidish thought, this, this moment of Zeis Hanukkah, this, the end of the, of the Gemar Din, the total ceiling of our Keshet Rabbeinu although it'll drop Rav Meir after Hanukkah, I thought we would, Perhaps start with uh, an idea, uh, Hanukkah-based, and and I think connected to your life and connected to something that is a phenomena that many, many have pointed out to. I, I sent you just a couple of minutes ago, a drosha from Rev Salvechik, where he speaks about the significance of, of Hanukkah. And he has a, a pretty radical idea that the Makairis that we have, all three of them, uh, the Makairis of the Sefer Maccabeum, Sefer Hashmanoyim, the piece of Megillus Tainus that's quoted in Masech the Shabbos, and even the Alanisim sort of were written in language that hid what was really the, the, the battle and the fight. And of course, others have said it before him, but the idea that we were afraid to come out and say it and was only Beremis was the fact that the Malchus Yovan Harisho'o wasn't so much the Seleucid Greeks and Antiochus the evil, but rather the satraps and their parchiks and the ones who had set up a a sort of a, a Vichy government, if you will, in Eretz Yisrael as the Misyavnim, and really forcing and encouraging and disseminating the ideas of Hellenism to the point, and Avodah we had a situation that was that we've never had, which is that Roiv of Klal Yisrael had given up had basically been metame yadus, and the heroism of the Hashmanoyim wasn't so much in their in their catapults and their guerrilla tactics and everything else that they were using, but somehow in their ability to inspire and change and be able to bring back many of the misyavnim back to a tahara roiv or most of Klal Yisrael almost gave up pure Judaism, real Judaism, and was ready to join the, the ranks of, of, of the non-Jewish world or the Hellenistic inclusive world. And that, that he says that will never happen again. That is part of the nest of Hanukkah. 
And yet, what are the numbers you think today of Shomrei Mitzvahs versus total non-affiliated Jews who are Jews only in bagel and lox and cream cheese name? You may be creating too stark a dichotomy there. Between Shomrei Mitzvahs, let's say orthodoxy, and the rest of Kal Yisrael, I think we represent a little more than 10% today. Uh, but that would include conservative and reform and reconstructionist affiliations. So again, absolutely nothing. I don't know the numbers for that, but non-orthodox, I think, is um, between 85 and 90% today. That even includes the, the, the burgeoning, surging orthodox population in Eretz Yisrael. Still, the numbers sort of indicate that we are fighting a terrible, terrible battle. And, you know, you have talked about and our discussions here, our, our tete-a-tetes, our schmoozing about your discovery and total connection coming from a non-religious background to a chesidisha background, not just a chesidisha background, but a chesidisha life. Uh, I I wanted to ask you about something that, that I have a lot of familiarity with in my teaching in the yeshiva of Newark, which is the reverse of your odyssey. The Chsidish Hevra from all walks, whether it be Satan or Vishnitz and maybe even Skver as well, all across the board, those that have sheared their payas, thrown off, not only Chsidis, but even, even further, who have gone off the data. You live in this world. How, how do you see that? Is it just a, something that the media likes to build up because it, you know, it sounds so scandalous? Right. I think there are, um, we have to, disentangle three different forms that this journey takes in the Hasidic world. I would just add parenthetically that I think the yeshiva world, the yeshiva show world, suffers somewhat from the same travel, and we can discuss that separately because it might be somewhat different. Monothodoxy, I think we'd have to analyze in a separate discussion. But let's focus for a moment on the Hasidim. I think there are three types of di- of disengagement, uh, if we can use that term. One is the person who becomes completely non-from. No Shabbos, no Kashas, maybe even in some cases into marriage. That's one. That's fairly rare. But then you have those who move to a softer practice of Yiddishkeit, Bichlal wind up settling in some quasi-modern Orthodox lifestyle, completely non-halachically rooted or non-halachically knowledgeable. And that, I think, is a, is a larger element. And then there are those who may still largely be in the cultural milieu, but no longer derive spiritual passion or sustenance from it. These are, are three different categories. But the Sada Shabashabahen is that somehow, uh, having once been plugged into a system, have opted for in varying levels, they've opted out of that system. And that is the question which has to be probed and discussed. Why have they opted out? Now, generally speaking, the Haredi world is not particularly strong in terms of self-criticism. Uh, usually they like to locate those who have penetrated their walls outside. They have not met the enemy and he is us. They have met the enemy and he is out there somewhere. 
it, it's the internet, it's wild Jewish music, it's any number of things, but it's not within. And I think obviously there is some truth to that. The world is a more open world. There is the computer, there is the internet. But I think what they really should be doing is engaging in a bit more of introspection within. In other words, why has the system failed to provide the passion or the insight necessary to stay plugged in as that plugging in is demanded in their societies? And I think it's a fascinating phenomenon. You will find many who will actually keep in a bizarre fashion some of the outer forms of Hasidic Yiddishkeit. They will have payas which are not halachic. They will have trim beards, bizarre haircuts, any form of outer, I don't have the right word here, but outer oddity in, in their practice of Yiddishkeit. And again, as I said before, completely devoid of halachic content, completely devoid of any kind of Torah content. So that is the matzah. And the question then becomes, why? You know, as we've had these uh, talks and we've been corresponding, I know there's a term you use a lot, which is, what team are you on? Which team are you with? Right. And, and I think what you mean by this is that instead of going to the essential ideas that formed that group way back, and again, even the word religios in, in, in Greek means the bonds that take you backwards to the source, it's basically like the Shania de Elisho. You don't ask questions. You basically monkey see, monkey do. This is the group that I was born with. This is what I know. What I mouth is basically what uh, what I've been hearing. There, there's a lack of of depth and understanding, and as you say, self reflection. I'm up to one second now. I don't know if the word is depth or understanding. I, I think I'd have to say it's more of a lack of passionate connection, because I don't think that it's 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 a lack of teaching philosophical or argumentative underpinnings. It's more a sense that they have not made the system as attractive to their youth as some sort of fun-ism, which their youth does find attractive. And therefore, what what their youth tends to do is to combine bits and pieces of total life and combine it with some commitment to a vague, misshapen fun-ism but it's not um, created by Bible criticism or Darwinism. First of all, in terms of the giving over of the information, but there was also the inability to recognize that there were many who couldn't process in the same way. And therefore, most of my students, although some of them were quite bright, felt that they were underserved and ignored the product is so darn good. You have to be a pretty terrible salesman not to have someone buy it. Because Talmud, learning, Chsidisha Machshava, uh, the Gishmak of Kedusha Slavi, or even a of Yelmeisha, the Gishmak of Arashi and Teisvis, Alachas Kama Vakama, Akhtsais and Nesivis, or Kivager, or even reading, uh, you know, Anachlas Mesha or some sort of a modern safer. There is so much meat there. But not everyone is masugal to to learn, and not everyone gets it. And because they don't get it, and because they've been ignored, they turn off. And therefore, so much of the teaching is so wrapped up in the actual texts 
and in the emphasis of the text, which they've never, so many of the Chassidish, talking about the boys, again, the girls, I, I can't really respond to, although that that gets a lot of media attention. So because the of that... The girls are better. I'm going to interrupt right here. The girls are better. The girls are better off because their educational system, since it covers many different subjects, both religious and secular, does not have that nine, ten hour Gemara day, which serves as a, sort of the spiritual quicksand for the boys. So although the Hasidic system really doesn't want the girls to get all that interested, but it does give them enough subjects and enough ways to express themselves. They can write a play, they can write a poem, they're doing secular subjects. So it does provide the means to be a part of things, whereas in the Hasidic yeshivas, as in the yeshiva yeshivas, you know, if you can't do nine, ten hours a day of Gemara, you're going to be in deep trouble. So a humorous formulation of this by a friend of mine once was, Hasidic schools, girls' schools, teach many subjects in the hope that their students become really interested in none of them. <laughs> you say very good. I sound like I'm, you know, coming down hard on, on the teachers. It's almost impossible, as you know, in other words, when you're, when you're the Rebbe and you've got a 20% of the kids or maybe in 30 that are, that are gishmak, you're automatically, your smiles, your attention, your ava, your chiba, you're staying later. And the other kids, the ones that, you know, have their noses pressed to the, to, to the window of the candy store who can only look in from outside, you know, they feel ignored. They feel that they haven't made it. It's not necessarily a hatred for their teachers, but a self-hatred, a sense that they are worthless. And therefore, they carry with them an animosity, whether they've articulated or not, towards the learning, because it reminds them of the, of the place that they occupy, a place of secondary significance. Yesterday, I gave a, a talk in a local Hasidic yeshiva, which shall remain nameless, and uh, I came in and some of the boys came over and they said, you know, what, what are you talking about? What's it going to be about? I said, what would you like me to speak about? So they said, Abinish Kantoida, Melantha Gadsatur, whatever you want, Abinish Kantoida. So, you know, that gives a sense of sort of where they were up to it uh, by 4.30 in the afternoon. In that, again, I, I have to keep saying this, but Gemara is a very complicated subject. And forget about any... Mefarshim, any depth, just the simple Gemara, Rashi, the steps of the Talmud are very complicated steps. And if one, you're not very bright. And if two, you know something with the outside world where you don't have to do such complicated uh, intellectual tasks, well, surely you're going to be, by the time you get to 4, 4.30 in the afternoon, you're going to be all played out. And that's when their day actually begins to a sense because they're going to be there until eight, nine, ten o'clock at night. So how can you not expect in this day and age in which attention spans are shortened, in which there's so much silly fun outside that they're not going to tire in many cases of the system? I was trained, Rav Mayer, at some of the teacher edification programs in something called Gemara Brura. And I'm sure you're familiar with it. And this was a, a, this was developed as a way to break down the Gemara 
and to show the different parts, that it isn't just a jumble of words and sentences and translations, which leads to just Viteichmann der Wort and was meant to do, but actually to see where questions are, where challenges are. And, and this program color-coded it, encouraged analysis and breakdown. And of course, this was something that is done in, in many of the, the modern schools. And, and in fact, there's even a demand for teachers to be proficient in it. And the, the best way that I know to use it is, of course, the smart board. Because when you actually put the piece of Gemara up on the board and you're able instantaneously to sort of take this jumble of verbiage and to transform it into different sections, then the Gemara is sort of like, do you remember like they used to have in the Highlights magazine? Can you find all the hidden things in the, there? And then in the back of the Highlights, they would, they would, they would show you the part where it was emphasized or where you could see everything. That's what could happen. You could have that Licht turn on where, hey, do you see how this Gemara, now, now we're going to do this. Now, I don't know how successful it's been in the modernish Welt because in the modern Welt, you know, it, it's hard to get them to, to even be there and to be there for more than 45 minutes. Do you think that the introduction of these type of more modern methods can perhaps start to include the, the weaker or, or, or less inclined students, even in the Chassidish Welt? I think it might. I think it might. I'd also add that I think you must diversify the curriculum. You must diversify the curriculum. You have to spend more time with Chumash, with Navi, with Mishnayos, with Halacha, with Lashon Kodesh, with Yiddishprach. You have to give the day some sense that something besides this one book is sitting on their desks the entire day. And even those places... They have other Sadarim, they have Bikirs, they have the afternoon, but it's usually the same as Sechta, because among the other obsessions of the current era is we must finish Masechtas. So they fill up the day with other Prakim, thus creating a sense that we're, all we're doing is this one book the entire day. Now, could some of those methods that you mentioned be of help? I think they could. You'd have to break down the utter submission before what they perceive as tradition, that, oh, I know a guy who told me, actually, the Shari Toysus, which I'm sure you're familiar with, sure. which takes Toysus and splits it up visually with introductions and different ways of formatting. He told me, it's it's subtracting from Yigiyasa Torah. So again, I think you have to move away from that Slavish uh, submission to, to that which once was. That which once was, was successful in the post-World War II era when you had very respectful, very submissive, very accommodating student bodies. The first or second generation in Hasidish yeshivas in the 50s and 60s and maybe early 70s, you had a sense of greater obedience, greater respect, so on and so forth. But once that fell apart, and it's an important discussion as to why that fell apart, but once that fell apart, then the 10-hour Gemara day became a form of uh, of torture. And I'll tell you something else, that I think even simple Musr or Hasidus needs to be placed into the curriculum to a far more serious extent. And another point which I would add is I think davening does not get enough attention in terms of what it is, what it means, 
Teichwerter. And again, I have a familiarity with one chassidish yeshiva. It's a little bit of a weaker element. So davening has to be quick. Because if davening is not quick, you're going to lose them during davening. So again, how do you overcome that difficulty? That's a very complex question in its own right. I think you can only overcome it if you have davening there a larger number of, let's say, Yingalait or serious Talmidim that will enable the spirit of prayer to permeate the air. But I know I've been long-winded, but my essential answer is yes, introduce that other methodology if you can, diversify the curriculum and make the religious experiences more passionate to which are there. You have to use Shabbos and Yontif and Motzah Shabbos and Yotzeit, and you have to use all these possibilities to a far, far larger extent than we've used it until now. Change happens in a grassroots level, but it also comes when that grassroots is recognized by the people that are running the show. And then when they feel that this is a hechrach, then they could push it through in a way that gets the gushpanka of authority. And is there a sense in the Chesidah Shavelt that there a crisis exists? I mentioned before that the media likes to point out these stories, whether it's unorthodox or whether it's the character in Shtisel who shaves his payas off and lives with the Argentine Zayna. Uh, you know, they, they love these things. But is this phenomena of kids falling off, losing geschmack, even becoming modern and having this sort of pseudo life where, again, you know, I, I didn't comment before, but I think part of it is, is that there's a fear uh, socially uh, to become a complete, you know, bohemian, you know, because they don't know the sprach. They know that if, if they go totally into the, to the Goyeshevelt that perhaps they would like to, they would be considered odd and strange because they don't know the lingo. They haven't been raised with it. They're afraid that they're a little bit embarrassed about their accents. And and therefore, it's easier to stay in this sort of limbo place where they still got the little yarmulke on and there's still elements, as you say, little signs. Is this considered a crisis by the Chesidah Shabbat? Do the Rebbes recognize this? Does Zalman recognize it? Does Aaron recognize it? Do, do, do the 45s and 48s recognize it? Or is it just like the way I remember it is the Chesidah Rabbonim would call us and say, oh, we, we really like your idea of a yeshiva for guys like this. But that's about it. But do they, do they recognize it and are going to try to make changes? Or, or they don't? Well, th- that was two separate questions, which you very quickly threw together. Do yeah. they recognize it, number one? To that, I would say today, yes, by and large. Are they prepared to do anything about it in a proactive way? Not once the uh, cow is out of the barn, but before that. And to that, my answer is, by and large, no. But what they are a little more aware of, they try, they create heavens, groups, group events, with Yingalite supervising them, there is a sense of trying to create a little more of a, a pleasant experience, a little more frequent pleasant experiences within their own ranks. And again, once again, the Chassid has the ability to do this. I, I suggest that not go one Chassid that they should take advantage of every major yard site on the calendar and provide Lake Echambronfen and there should be each of my and sit with the class and tell over Sipuri Masas and Kadema. So again, 
it, what one of them said to me was, you don't know what they'll meet them. If you give them Lake and Bronfen, they're going to, they're going to get drunk. So, you know, that was a shocking comment, but I think that you've got to start very early with this because by the time they're 16, 17, they're a little too cool for it. I'll tell you, I enjoy immensely davening in the Bovavar of Besmedrish, which is close to my home. And it's not Moli Vagodish with Yorzeiten, but there are Yorzeiten of various tzaddikim that Tachnon gets nitche. And I can see in the tables behind me that there's some herring laid out and some cake and other things. And I've sat with the Chevra. And part of what I feel I have to do is, okay, as mezitzdu from Rameir Pamashlamel's yard site, or as mezitzdu from the Neum Elimelech's yard site, was me ibrzogen teirifenem. As mezitzdu tzazamen. Or at least masses, at least masses. For right. sure. What I'm so shocked, Rameir, is that it's mostly about, okay, we didn't say ta'achton, let's eat, and let's get out of there. And these are the adults, these are wonderful, these, these people aren't off the derech. Oh, no, 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 let, let, let me... Correct you there. They've lost the appropriate kishmak. That's what they've lost. They've lost the sense of what the Yuatsat is. They've lost the sense of the kishmak and the masses and the veter and kadoima. This, this I can certainly tell you, you know, when I was coming up in the ranks in Square, when there would be a, a Yuatsat, the Shabbos before the Yuatsat, we would go to the, the current office of Kerebe to his home, and he would sit, and tell over and toiders from the Balyotza from the Kimmel So the problem with these 30, 40 year old herring uh, eaters that you've encountered is they never had those experiences. They never had experiences with El Terechasidim of an ants the oifen. And that's the crying need. You're right. Once you get to be 30, 40, then, you know, it's, it's, it's lost pretty much because you've never experienced it. You've never seen it. They need serious mashpiyam that will give them a sense of serious geschmack, nicht, nicht geschmack. Many years ago, uh, the local newspaper, the Journal News, interviewed Reb Daniel Goldstein, who was a, a, a Yid who lived in Square, actually came from Tervadas, Tervadas background, but he was full-fledged Square. And the Journal News interviewer asked him if there is any alcohol in the community. And he said, yes, yes. He said, once a month, and he was referring to Rosh Chodesh, once a month there's a get-together, and we drink this much. And he held up his fingers to show like uh, uh, an inch, like a, 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 a microscopic amount of bronfen that was given on Rosh Chodesh, the cover Rosh Chodesh. So I think that sense of what a Yorzeit is, what Rosh Chodesh is, what a seed is, that it is a, a serious but geschmack. And the problem, I think, with contemporary youth is they don't know the difference between joy and fun. I think that's an important distinction. They they have absorbed from the outside world a sense of fun, sort of which is a, a flippant, frolicsome, superficial thing, and they have, on the other hand, not absorbed the sense of a vigilu barada. So that's, again, it belongs to the leaders, it belongs to the rabbeim, it belongs to the communities to imbue them with that. So we, we know of this, Tofa'ah. And you're right, it's in the Yeshiva Shevelt, uh, as well. What do you see after these people, men and women, have gone off? Is there, you know, Rav Salvechik, I started today with 
that the Hashmanoyim somehow brought them back. What do you see as, as methods, you know, to bring back? There is, of course, a, a organization known as Jew in the City. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And no. basically, uh, what they are about is recognizing that many of these, uh, yeshivisha, gur, fruma, chsidisha are not coming back to a life of chsidis. And let's create an environment where they feel comfortable with who they are in their own skin. Let's give them a little bit of social uh, training in terms of being now part of the new modern Orthodox world and recognizing how unique they are in terms of where they started. In many ways, they could become wonderful modern Orthodox Eden. There's a fellow like that in my community. It was a I, I always, you know, speak to him in Yiddish. And the truth is, is that unlike feeling that, no, I'm just a pariah and from my community, I can now bring some of the gifts that I was raised with and make my modern orthodoxy a little more gishmak. Right. Well, again, I think we have to do some disentangling here. First of all, there's this looming question, which is to what extent should their leaders or even the leaders who encounter them when they're closer to the to the exit door, should their leaders be telling them that many things that they formerly thought were hisyavnas, let's call it, many things which they formerly thought were terrible are not so bad. And I'll give you an example of this. Those hardcore Hasidah Shechadarim that are still playing by the uh, by the old rule book. Uh, ball playing is viewed as goyish, whereas those that are a little softer, they will allow ball playing, or some will allow ball playing pre-bar mitzvah or till 14-year-old. And this is a question of to what extent do you say to them some things which you once thought were bad or maybe not so bad, would you might use those things to create a more pleasant environment for them? And I come back again to Munkach where I am to do some tutoring and the boys do play soccer during their breaks, but it's in such a disorganized fashion with dozens of kids on each side. I mean, how can anybody possibly enjoy that? And again, would it be organized? Would that perhaps be better? Secondly, so again, should we be telling them that certain things are not quite as bad as we once told them? And maybe it will be a shock to their system. Maybe it won't be a shock to their system. Secondly, might we not consider a more robust secular curriculum? If not for its own purpose, but simply to make the day a little better, a little more pleasant. I know there are certain kids, they have a geschmack in history. They, they would have a geschmack in science. I mean, would I have that kishmak? But they would have it. And is it perhaps not a bad idea to give that to them? Maybe do it on a voluntary basis. Say whoever wants to have two hours of English late afternoon should have it. That's one thing which I can think might very well help the situation because people can plug into different things of different interests. Third, creativity. In other words, writing, write, speak. Write a play. Again, things that are done in the girls' schools, but are not done in the boys' schools. So that if a kid, again, I'm going back to the same problem. If the kid has no geschmack and a longer toysvist, he's going to wind up kicking out the chair from under the kid sitting next to him and engaging in sort of informal wrestling matches throughout the late afternoon hours. 
So again, I think that if you might tell them that certain things are permissible, you might offer certain things. And again, here's another point. I know I'm carrying on a bit, but here's here's another point. Those people who start to leak out and head to the exit doors, they will generally plug into low culture because it's all they hear about, it's all they know about. They're going to want to watch action films or maybe worse than action films. They're going to want to uh, locate themselves at the lowest levels of the outside culture. Is it could die maybe to tell them if you have a student body which you know is is watching videos and watching movies, maybe tell them that certain movies might be capable of providing insight, inspiration, instruction, and you don't have to watch, you know, Car Chase 14 or whatever the thing is that they're watching, and that might provide them in the world they've entered into, into a more thoughtful, introspective way. So again, I'm sorry, there's a lot of things that could be done, but you have to have the courage to do it, to say, okay, you're watching videos. Now let's talk about it. There's this kind, there's this kind, there's that kind. But which yeshiva is going to be willing to do that? I cannot see a real echte, echte, chesidische moised um advising even if, the students are, even if the students are watching right it, it, coming and speaking to the talmud and advising him and saying you know fast and furious toignisht over 12 angry men those against the yoke you know that's I, right I, that's I, right it would be almost that's an right. impossibility to hear that coming out of the, the, the mouth it would be a mission impossible it would be a mission impossible yes it would be yes <laughs> i don't i don't even know if the rebbe of shlomo hill could 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 pull it off no, he um, would be against it i mean as someone who knew him pretty well he would be against it. He felt it couldn't be done. I was more saying, Rav Mayer, that when you when they see that the kind, the child, in all, whether it's in a chesidisha moised or whether it's in a yeshivish, they see that the kid is on the precipice of leaving. And they could tell. And the parents give that feedback. That might be the place where, look, there are options here. It may be. They should say instead of rising kriya that the kid is no longer turk pious and he and he and he, and he doesn't care about his rabbeinu tam tefillin anymore, but rather say this might be a life connect with their brethren as we say connect with the modern orthodox rabbi in this community and build the bridges and we might be speculating or it might actually be happening maybe there is a rolodex where the chesidisha manalim can say look. It's not possible to keep him here. Let us now call the Hevra at Ramaz, Frisch, wherever it is, or even beyond. If the kid is past high school, you want to enter in this community, let me try to give you a landing spot. That's sort of what Jew in the city tries to do. And in that way, at least, they don't go into this terrible, terrible descent and just pick up whatever they can. Many of the Hasidim in, in Monsi who have been drifting out, wind up sending their kid to Ashar, which was founded as High Rock, the modern Orthodox uh, day school in Rockland County in the early 50s. High Rock has been engulfed, today it's called Ashar, has been engulfed with Hasidim and Yeshivalite who have drifted out of their prospective systems, much to the dismay, I add here, Parenthetically, much to the dismay of the founders and the major contributors who set this up as the 
the pre-MTA Mount North Dykes Elementary School back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Today it has become the landing place for Hasidim who do not want to live on Phyllis Terrace and Visionets and Jefferson Avenue and Square. For those who don't want to live in that milieu, it has provided a landing place for them. But here is where I think it gets a little tricky because those parents and their kids view this as some sort of compromised life. In that sense, the Chassidu has drifted out to some degree, believes the propaganda of his own culture's demonizers. He believes that this, what he is now doing, is somewhat less than his brother, who's still living in Square of Vision, and going to the mikveh every day. And it's almost like Nebuchadnezzar, you know, Right, that's right. Basically. about themselves. But they believe it about themselves. Right, they believe that they have Nebuchadnezzar. That's what they believe. Right. Unfortunately, they have fallen off the grid too, and this is what you have to do. And you're right; it creates a lack of simcha in their life, and a sense that this is a a, a terrible burden, which of course is conveyed to the child as well. That the yes. child recognizes oh, that he's oh, not yeah. like his cousin. Oh yes, oh yes, and they, they see it as a burden. And therefore, Shabbos, for example, Shabbos Yantav becomes sort of a perfunctory thing. There's no preparation for the Shabbos Yantav. Nishtan halacha, nishtan chaseh There's no preparation for it. You daven in a shul, which davens terribly fast. You come home, and whatever, that you eat the suda. But as one of my Talmudim, my Orthodox Talmud, once asked me, back in the days when newspapers were still around, he said to me, Rabbi, what should I do Shabbos afternoon after I have finished reading the New York Post three times? Because <laughs> the Shabbos Dachmetik is so long that he felt that he didn't know what to do. So I think that's a big problem. So what do they wind up doing, a lot of these kids? They go out, they're playing ball, they're hanging out with who knows what, because their parents do not know of any alternative. They do not know of any alternative, and therefore they don't have it to give over to the kids. And that's why I say, as I said earlier, Shabbos and Yantiv. The, the Hasidic yeshivas that are not plugged into a mainstream Rebbe, they have to do a lot of work in providing an alternative Shabbos, an alternative Yantiv, an alternative Matzah Shabbos for the Talmidim. And again, these are the beginning of things that I think are starting here and there, but it's way, way too late. I want to return to something we said earlier today. And that is, what do I see as the future? So here I'm going to say that I think the future is interesting because let's say there was a grandparent or a parent who drifted into this confused milieu of nishtalacha de capayas and who knows what kind of bizarre looking beckishes and pointy shoes like, you know, uh, Rumpelstiltskin or something. What happens to their children? So I am seeing not an avalanche, but I am seeing a bit of a return in the next generation. You know, every kid wants to rebel against his parents a little bit. So you can rebel against your parents' rebellion and go back a little bit, see Mera Anstrazach. I have suggested in some of these moistas that they should make shiurim and shmuzin and rosh for the parent body. Work with the parent body. Give them a share in what their boys are learning. Bring them up to Shabbos to ask them of Malka. And let's see if you can readjust what the parents are up to. The inevitable response that I get is the parents won't come. But I'm not quite so pessimistic. Obviously, you know, we every parent, despite the differences they see in their children, 
recognize that their netzach, as the Sifrei says in Parshas Re'eh, Re'echa asher kenapshecha, that's your father, right? When it talks about Re'echa, where is it that you have a friend who sees in you the extension of themselves, their own soul, of course, as a child and a parent. So I, I do believe that that the parents, ultimately, again, you have some uh, dysfunctional parents, but most of them, even the ones that you say that have adopted sort of this, uh, the weird clothing and, you know, pseudo-Hasidic life are definitely bound up with their child and will be connected where their child is going. I know this because both of us have spent interminable hours at parent-teachers conferences and we see the way the parents wait at the door and how they come in. And I agree with you. I think it's something very strong. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.